KMTT Kimitzion Tetzetorah. We'll be hosting Harav Yitzhak Blau, who will be giving a series on modern rabbinic thought. The Shirim this week are dedicated to Rufuah Shlema for Sarah Rivka Bat Dvorah. And we pray that the Shrut of Hafatzat Torah and Imut Torah Barabim יעמוד לה רפואה שלמה ולהחלמה מהירה, רפואת הנפש ורפואת הגוף, אשתה בהגדה ובזמן קריב. is the broad intellectual curiosity and f- far-ranging intellectual reach of Israel Lifshitz. He was basically interested in everything. Together with everything includes the wide gamut of Jewish sources, as well as secular and non-Jewish voices as well. Connected to that, we will talk about Rav Lifshitz's attitude towards the non-Jewish world. And clearly in our tradition, one will have a whole range of attitudes, some more negative, some more positive. Rav Lifshitz had a relatively more positive attitude, and I think that the two issues are related. To the degree that one is more positive about non-Jews, one will be more positive about the wisdom that they produce, and therefore that includes seeing the value in secular studies. Of course, the reverse is also true. To the degree that one finds wisdom and religious meaning in the voices of non-Jews, one is more likely to have a more positive outlook on them. So I believe the two issues are inherently related. Let us begin with Rav Lifshitz's broad intellectual reach, and then we will move on to his approach to non-Jews. First, let's talk about different fields of thought. Math. Rav Lifshitz, as we mentioned, has an introduction to Seder Mo'ed. In the introduction to Seder Mo'ed, beyond introduction dealing with Hilchot Shabbat and the like, there's also a section on the calendar called Shvili Durakia. However, what's more fascinating is the following section. He writes, V'achar shi'adano kolela, now that we know all of this, Na'kelen u'lachshov u'lasader gamken batzmenu cheshbon chadshei ha'chama shel ha'umot. Hanikra calendar. And he then explains how the non-Jewish calendar works. And here one could have said that really explaining, if it was just a question of knowing the halacha, explaining the principles of the Jewish calendar would suffice. It sounds like here, Rav Lushitz is giving some inherent value to just the, the mathematical endeavor. And now he's going to explain the non-Jewish calendar with an explanation first of with the Latin roots of the word calendar, and then he proceeds. This is more explicitly manifest in a famous Mishnah in Avos. There's a Mishnah towards the end of the third chapter in Avos, which says, Tkufot v'gmatriot parparot l'chachma, that the seasons and other numerical calculations are somehow a dessert to wisdom. And Rav Lifshitz there uses a famous mashal. He says that Torah is the bread for the soul. And other wisdoms could be the butter that one puts on the bread. And here, of course, an interesting point emerges, although he doesn't spell out the implications. Meaning someone could argue that the reason why one should only learn Torah all day is because bread is better than butter. But of course, given the choice between 10 pieces of bread and 9 pieces of bread and butter, many of us would opt for the latter. Meaning even if one assumes that Torah study would be the most important endeavor to be studied by the religious Jew, yet at the same time, there's a place for other wisdoms. It is the butter that makes the bread that much tastier. Now, the question is why? What is the value to these calculations? So here, Rav Lifshitz has a pragmatic halachic rationale, as well as an inherent religious rationale. So he says, You need to know the calculations of the seasons for calculating the new moons. 
Now here this relates to what we said, his interest in the calendar, which could have halachic motivation, understanding how the Jewish seasons and Chagim are supposed to work. However, Rav Lifshitz continues, again at the end of the third parakavot, Also in order to know the great wisdom of the Creator. And here it sounds like that there's an inherent value, meaning if one appreciates the mathematics and scientific reality of the world, one will appreciate uh, the beauty of the divine creation. And therefore it gives a certain uh, stamp of approval to the mathematical scientific endeavor involved in calculating the seasons. In addition to the above, uh, it's interesting to note that in the 16th chapter of Olot, he cites chapter and verse from Euclid regarding a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Okay, so this is in terms of math. I think uh, in terms of literature, one will find a similar impulse. He doesn't have long discussions about literature, but for example, there's a mission in Sanhedrin which is, says that if you read the external books, seems rather harsh about these books. And one, arguably, these books might be the works of Homer or works of idolaters. And Revolutions there says that it's true, this uh, source seems very negative, but he says, Asurak bikviut. This is only prohibited if one learns them in a fixed fashion all the time. But not if one learns them in a more haphazard fashion in order to know how to respond to the heretic. Now, granted, here he doesn't give it inherent value. It seems more pragmatic that one will know how to respond to other competing ideologies. At the same time, it is striking that he does not say that this is a blanket prohibition, that there are times where one would be allowed to read this literature. I think the, and then regarding history, Rev. Lifshitz also reveals an interest and a knowledge and an ability to use his knowledge of history to help him get shot in the Mishnah. In the 30th chapter of Kelim, there's the word Aspaklaria appears, and there's a discussion among various commentaries what the Aspaklaria refers to. And Rev. Lifshitz argues that it can possibly be a periscope or telescope because the Mishnah is written way before Zacharias Johnson created the telescope in the 1600s. And here again... The little knowledge of history is employed by Rav Lushitz for interpreting the Mishnah. He also occasionally works off Josephus, and here are the few interesting examples. In the second parak of Chagiga, there's a discussion of the Zugot, the different pairs, right? That each generation had a pair of rabbinic scholars who stood at the head, like such as Shmai and Avtalion, etc. Now, of course, the last of the Zugot is Hill and Shammai. In that Mishnah Chagiga, it emerges that first it was Hill and Menachem. Then it says, Yatza Menachem, Menachem left. And the question is, of course, where did Menachem go? So the Gemara has two possibilities. Either Yatza Tarbut Ra, he went off the derech, he found another approach to life, or Yatza Avodat HaMelech, he went to the service of the king. The Tferis Israel points out that there's a fellow named Menachem in Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews, who uh, ha- says a prophecy about King Herod, about Hurdus HaMelech, uh, who, at which point later in his life, when Hurdus actually becomes the king, Hurdus calls on this Menachem to uh, come to his palace. He's the one who prophesies about his kingship. And Rav Lushet says, maybe this is the same Menachem, that the Menachem who was Yatzal Avodat HaMelech might be this Menachem from the Antiquities of the Jews. Now, without entering to the question whether this is a more convincing or less convincing identification, it's still noteworthy that religious thinks that based on details one could uh, glean from Josephus, one might be able to understand Pshat and the mission in the Gemara. Another example of the above is in Bikurim. In the third chapter of Bikurim, it describes the procession of Bikurim towards the Mikdash, towards Yerushalayim. And here we have a statement about Agrippa Samelech. 
that the Mishnah says, Hachalil, this Mishnah, Peragimah Mishnah Dad, Hachalil Ma'kelef Ne'emach Shemagim Harabayit. So we have music, and they're heading towards Harabayit. Higilu Harabayit, and they're arriving. Afilu Agrippa Semelech Notel Asal Ketifo. Even King Agrippus would take a basket of Bikurim on his shoulders. I mean, this was not viewed as being beneath him. Now, why does it pick Agrippas for the example? So the Rambam says, He was from the second Jewish kingdom, from Bayacheni. And he had a lot of, uh, he was a man of great nobility and distinction. And it sounds like the point is, even Agrippas, even Agrippas, a king of such great aristocratic uh, demeanor, even he would, would carry the sal. And here, the Pharisee says, but this really flies in the face of what we know about Agrippas historically. And the historical sources indicate that Agrippas was towards the end of Baicheni, at a time that the Jews were really, for the most part, subservient to the Romans. Uh, their independence was heavily, heavily watered down. And therefore, Agrippas wouldn't stand for, wouldn't be a symbol for great aristocracy. And therefore, the Tiferius well suggests that actually, it's a different shot. It's perhaps the opposite, that Agrippus' status was shaky. And he was shaky not only because they were subservient to the Romans. His whole status as a king was shaky because of his lineage. Also, there's a Talmudic discussion about that. And therefore, you might have thought that he would be especially reluctant to do anything that might lessen his sense of grandeur. So, therefore, the point is, even Agrippus, who had to worry about his status, he also would carry the sal. So, where the Rambam has it, even Agrippus, who was so aristocratic, the Tiferet Yisrael says, even Agrippus, whose status was already shaky, he would carry the sal without being nervous. Again, indicating the significance of the Bikurim, but for our purposes, indicating Rav Lifshitz's willingness to bring in other historical sources to arrive at the Pshat. So, we've looked at math and literature and history. I would say also in terms of the composition of the Talmud, right, certain questions that sometimes today are asked only in university, although they've been, certainly been asked by Rishon and Achronim throughout our history, questions about composition. These questions interested the Tverei Yisrael greatly. Just to give you a few examples, at the end of Kalim, Rabbi Yossi says, Ashrecha Kalim, Kalim is fortunate, that it finishes with the word Tahor. It ends with Tahara. Now, Rabbi Yossi is the generation before Rebbe. If the Mishnayot did not exist in any organized format before Rebbe, so then it wouldn't be possible to talk about how Kalim ends. Right? There would be no such entity as Kalim in which to end. Says Rav Lifshitz, one sees that there was an organized group of Mishnayot before Rebbe. Rebbe was not creating, working out of nothing. Rebbe took a body of work that already existed and brought it to its final form. But there were organized Mishnayot before. Some of the point that interests interest Rav Lifshitz at the end of Kalim. Other issues in terms of placement also interest him. He is one of the few commentaries who raises the following question about the Mishnah and Rosh Hashanah. If one looks at Masechet Rosh Hashanah, in theory it divides into a very easy division. The first two chapters have to deal with the Jewish calendar, and the last two chapters deal with the mitzvah of Tkiat Shofar. And it would be a very smooth division. However, the division is not so smooth because the first Mishnah and the third Perek is still on the topic of Kiddush HaChodesh. And then from the second Mishnah on, it moves on to the topic of Shofar. So the, most of the standard commentaries on the Mishnah do not raise this question. But Rav Lifshitz is curious. Rav Lifshitz wants to know why is it that a Mishnah about Kiddush HaKodesh is moved to the beginning of the third parak rather than where it would seemingly belong at the end of the second parak. Again, Rav Lifshitz is interested in placement. Rav Lifshitz is also interested in some of the stylistic questions. Towards the end of the first parak of Mesechet Nagayim, Mishnahe and Mishnavav, there are two Mishnayot that are basically the mirror images of each other. One Mishnah begins with Ketzad Lahakel, and one Mishnah begins with Ketzad Lahachmir. 
And it's really, it's just de-reversing every detail in the previous Mishnah, just in one case for leniency and the other for stringency. And stylistically, it would seem that one didn't really need both these Mishnayot. Right? One, we could have inferred it from the first Mishnah, or one sentence of summary could have sufficed with, in lieu of the second Mishnah. And again, Rav Lushitz raises the question there why the Mishnah does it, and he suggests that it's, uh, several sources seem to indicate that Nagaim was considered particularly difficult. And if Nagim is considered particularly difficult, you might want to clarify things and review things and prevent the, present them in a very simplified fashion to a greater extent than you would otherwise. So here, Rav Lushitz, again, is dealing with this question, why have two similar Mishnah? He also has a very creative suggestion for the topic of chesuri mechsra. We know that the Gemara, in a few places, seems to solve a problem by arguing that the Mishnah is missing words. And there's a real question, what does it mean? Does it literally mean that words were left out, that there needs to be textual emendations, or is that not what it means? And Rav Lifshitz suggests that we have to, this is in the fourth paragraph of Erechen, Rav Lifshitz suggests that we have to see Chisuri Mechsera in light of the more greater oral character of learning Torah at the time of the Mishnah. That we, live in a, we today live in a very written culture. We think of learning in terms of opening a sefer, opening a book. However, clearly the ori- original nature of Torah Shalpeh was not that way. And indeed, most of human learning in the early years, certainly before printing, but even more so earlier than that, that the learning was mostly oral. So when you have an oral culture, you need methods and brevity to re- remember things by heart. And Rav Lushitz likes to suggest that Chisur Mechser has to do with shortening certain terms to make it more poetic, to give it a mnemonic quality that one would be able to remember it. And it's a conscious, it's not that words were dropped, but words were consciously left out to give it this oral quality. Again, I'm not sure if Rav Lushitz's interpretation is the strongest interpretation of Chisur Mechser, but I think, again, it shows this interest in history and composition that we've seen. We've had questions of when was the Mishnah put together, why are Mishnah organized the way they are, why is there a doubling. These are things that interested Rav Lushitz. The last topic we'll look at in terms of his breath is the issue of science. And here, Rav Lifshitz seemed to have a particular affinity for science. And there are a few examples I think will really bring the point home. In the eighth parak of Yuma, there's a discussion what happens if someone was bitten by a rabid dog. Now, Rav Lifshitz there chooses, and there's also discussion of other illnesses, excuse me, such as bomus. Rav Lifshitz chooses to, once I'm here ready to give you what he thinks is the cure for these illnesses. This is quite striking. Right? Most commentaries on the Mishnah, most Mepharshim would not be, do a tangent, describe the medical cure. They'd just be interested in explaining Pshat in the Mishnah. Rav Lifshitz talks about what kind of uh, fruits and vegetables one should eat if one has scurvy. Right? He mentions lemon. We know that citrus helps with scurvy. And there, this is something he takes time out from his commentary to do. And he also discusses what one should do if one's bitten by a rabid dog. And he quotes an Italian doctor there, who, what he suggested. I mean, I'm not an expert on medicine. My impression is that Rav Lushitz's cure for scurvy is a lot more effective than his cure for rabid bites. However, at the same time, his taking time from his parish to discuss these matters in the Eighth Perk of Yuma indicates a, an interest in science. Uh, a few other examples. In the Ninth Perk of Chulin, there's a discussion of an akhbar that is chatsi batsar v'chatsi adama, half flesh and half ground, which seems to be some kind of idea about spontaneous generation. And it's a well-known issue that Chazal seem to believe in spontaneous generation where contemporary science tells us that it doesn't truly occur. And there are various positions on this one. does not need to hold that Chazal knew all the scientific discoveries that would happen later. However, Rav Lipschitz, in this case, <coughs> tries to support Chazal. And he quotes the chapter and verse from a German scientist named Link about 
the possibility of spontaneous generation. I will point out that Professor Lyman has an article in a volume called Chazon Nachum, where he argues that Rev. Lifshitz misunderstood Link, which again might indicate that he was not an expert on science, but I think the curiosity and uh, the interest was there. He was someone who uh, certainly dabbled in reading various scientific books and tried to use that knowledge to help him understand Torah. A more famous example of this is what he has in a work called the Jush Or HaChayim, that at the end of Sanhedrin, Rav Lifshitz has an essay on immortality, which is a fascinating essay in its own right. Among the issues that comes up in this Jush Or HaChayim is he discusses the fossil record, and he mentions Quiver, one of the most important uh, paleontologists of the 1800s, or 1700s, 1800s, and he mentions his findings and tr- tries to connect it to Kabbalistic ca- ideas of worlds preceding this world. Again, without getting into the details there, it's a certain interest, uh, uh, he, a reading of what the Gentile scholars have to say and an attempt to try to integrate that into, into our understanding of Torah. I think perhaps the, uh, the most powerful example of this might be what he does at the end of Kedushin. And here there is a piece that is really well worth reading in total. At the end of Kedushin, there is a discussion of professions. What is an appropriate profession for a religious Jew? And it's quite an interesting Mishnah. Towards the end of that Mishnah, we have the following. It says, uh, One should pray to God. Every every profession has the possibility of poverty and wealth. Poverty and wealth doesn't come from the profession per se. According to the person's merit. Now, what does zchuto mean? So there's a toast vote there in Kiddushin that says zchuto means mazalo. Now, at face value, tosis would seem to be saying that it depends on your astrological constellation. That if you're born in a particular astrological setting, this will impact on the wealth or poverty that you end up with. And this is something that Revolution is very adamantly against. And he bases himself on the Rambam and argues that astrology isn't really true. Astrology is false. Which is interesting because many Rishonim actually did accept some of the validity of astrology. Here, I believe that the Revolution is uh, showing the degree to which he accepts much of the modern scientific worldview. And he says that astrology is simply false. And therefore, it can't be what Tosvos means. And he actually suggests that Mazal does not mean astrology in this context. And he gives a much more naturalistic reading of the word Mazal. And as, when he talks about various factors that Mazal would include, he mentions things such as the genetic material one receives from the parents, the climate one was brought up in, the time in which one was born, right, the nourishment that a person's had in one's childhood, the raising, what kind of education did one get, and then the work that one does. And it's clear that he's explaining Hakolafi Zchuto, i.e. Hakolafi Mazalo, in a very naturalistic fashion. That it, it doesn't always depend on which profession you pick, but it depends on a host of factors. What, uh, what are one's God-given talent, and what kind of education did one get? And this becomes the determining factor in what kind of money a person will make in their lifetime. In that context, so again, I think this again suggests a certain naturalistic approach, certain belief in the natural order, which is connected to a scientific worldview. In that context, he says something very striking. He is talking about why the famous conundrum of Tzadik Viralo. So he mentions a whole bunch of uh, possibilities about why this Tzadik Viralo, why the righteous suffer. Again, those of you who would like to find this, this is at the very end of Masechet Kiddushin. There's a very long boaz towards the end there. This is all in that piece. And he says that Tzadik Viralo could happen for various reasons. One might be because the Tzadik might have sinned. Right? Famous question, famous possibility. 
Or maybe it's a nisayon, some kind of test, or some kind of desire to bring out certain character traits of the tzaddik. Or he suggests maybe some good comes out of this prop, evil. Okay. Then in the fourth approach, I think this is the most striking. Maybe for Hashem to make it work out that the tzaddik will get the good and the rush will get the bad. This will involve a break in the natural order. And this God set up the natural order. And now it sounds like, this is also interesting in the context of discussions of theodicy, that Rilufshit says that Hashem is extremely reluctant to tamper with the natural order. And once there needs to be a natural order, without getting to the theological question of why it's important that there be a natural, a natural order, it's sometimes the bad things are going to happen to the righteous people and good things will happen to the wicked people. This is simply the product of, having, of there being a natural order. And then Rilufshit gives an etymology for the word teva. The teva hu lashon matbeya over la socher. Tevis mur matbeya, but specifically a coin that's over la socher. Now, a coin that's over la socher is a coin that works well, that one could get it accepted and will be exchanged in various markets. Which the Revolutions goes on to say, She'ein ha-melech poslo rak midocha gadol. The king will only invalidate such a coin through great duress, i.e., Teva represents this matbeya that's supposed to remain consistent. It's supposed to have an effect in various contexts, and only in very unusual circumstances will it be changed. So here we have Rav Lifshitz describing... We have now seen Rav Lifshitz's interest in a broad range of issues, his interest in history and math and science and issues of the composition of the Talmud. And now we're going to move on to other issues I mentioned, Rav Lifshitz's attitude towards the non-Jewish world. And here... It's most manifest in his commentary in Avod, but I would like to mention briefly a few other interesting examples. In the 10th perk of Sanhedrin, is the famous Mishnah, Kol Yisrael Yeshlam Chelek Olam Haba, that the entire Jewish people has a share in the world to come. And Rav Lushet says, what about the Umot Olam? He describes the Jews' role in the world to come, the non-Jews' role in the world to come. And he says, After Kaimlan, the Gam Chasidah Umot, Yeshlam Olam Haba, we follow the ruling based on the Rambam, that the righteous of the Gentiles have a place in the world to come. But then he throws in one line that I am not aware of its parallel in rabbinic literature. Even not just the tzaddikim or the chasidim of the motolam, even the benonim, even the regular, the regular non-Jew has a place in the world to come. What's his inference? Ah, the same Mishnah that says every Jew has a place in the world to come goes on to exclude certain people. Who's excluded? So we mention first three kings, Yeravam, Achav, and Manasseh, clearly all Jews. Then we exclude a few other people, Bil'am, Doeg, Achitopo, Vegechazi. Now, if they're Jews, so then that's one question, but Bil'am is a non-Jew. And if then Bil'am is excluded, that seems to indicate that it's only when one is wicked as Bil'am that one is excluded. But the regular run-of-the-mill non-Jew would also have a place. So this, again, I think indicates a certain more positive outlook towards the non-Jewish world. And Rav Lifshitz's conception, not only the tzaddikim, but the benim of the non-Jews will also have a place in the world to come. I think this is also manifest in the fourth parak of Baba Kama. The fourth parak of Baba Kama, there's a discussion of what happens if a Jew's ox scores a non-Jew's, or if a non-Jew's ox scores a Jew's. There, the Tiferet Yisrael quotes a well-known piece from the Ber HaGolah, where he argues that various... Uh, economic discrepancies or disadvantages that the non-Jew has in halacha do not apply to contemporary non-Jews, right? That would apply to non-Jews who do not behave decently towards us or in general, and that the non-Jews that we're dealing with, these halacha would fall away. So, so as where one would not necessarily be obligated, according to Talmudic law, to return a lost object to a non-Jew, 
that this, in contemporary times, one would be obligated to. So the fact that Ferris Israel quotes this in Baba Kama in the fourth parak, again, would indicate something about his attitude. As I mentioned, it is most manifest in his commentary on Avot. And here, there's a few strong examples. First, in Avot, there's different terminology used for who is being described. Right? Sometimes we have the word Adam, or the word Briot, and here, Rav Lipschitz picks up on this point. So in the first parak of Avot, in parak Aleph, Mishnah Yudbet. Ah, sorry, one last piece of background information. Excuse me. We also know that there's a Gemara that says, it, it says, Adam ki ba'ohel. When a person dies in a tent, he's a source of Tumen The Gemara says, Atem kuyin adam ve'inu mota olam kuyin adam. You are called Adam and the mota olam are not called Adam. I.e. that non-Jew, non-Jewish cadavers would not cause Tumen now, this is a line that, certainly taken out of context, could prove problematic. What, what do you mean, are non-Jews not people? What does it mean, Ema umat olam adam? This is something that there are various approaches to. The simplest approach, I think, is the approach to found both in the Maritz Chayot, in Yuvamot, and in the Torah Tamima, that it certainly does not mean that non-Jews are not people, but rather that when the Torah says Adam, it's meant in a limited context. Right? If I get up in a shul and say, everybody has the right to vote, I mean everybody in that shul, I don't mean everybody in the world. So Adam, in the context of the Torah, means the Jewish people. That is certainly the simplest explanation. Revolutions, however, is going to take things in another direction. So let's work off that Gemara that the term Adam might not be might be a reference specifically to Jews and not to non-Jews. Tosos and Yevamos, Samach Aleph, already suggests there might be difference between Adam and Ha'adam. That Adam would be just Jews and Ha'adam would be universal. With that background, we can now go back to a vote. So in Perak Aleph, Mishni Yedbet, we have Hillel making the following statement. Right? What should a person do? Have Amy Tamidav Shalaron, Ohev Shalom, Rodev Shalom, Ohev Tabriot, and Torah. Once you love Briot, who are, who are Briot? So here the Tver Yisrael is very clear. And he says this includes a filo over Kochavim. And he argues that's why it doesn't use the word Adam. Right? Adam, based on that Gemara, might have been restricted. Briot is universal. So Hill is telling you to love not just the Jewish people, but to express a certain amount of love for humanity. In a later Mishnah, in Perak Aleph, Mishnah Tedvav, he does the same thing with the statement of Shammai. Shammai says, having a kabel at kol ha'adam, besever panim yafot, you should greet everybody with a friendly countenance. Once again, the Revelif should says, kalalkan re'a vinachri ashir vani, etc., etc. This includes the non-Jewish world, and here he plays off the Tosvos. It says, ha'adam, not adam. So now Revelif should says, briot includes non-Jews, ohevet briot. Mekabel at kol ha'adam, again, includes the non-Jews. However, let us now move to the third parak. And here, Rav Lushetz perhaps makes his most powerful statement on this topic. By the third parak in Mishni Yadalad, we have a very famous statement about, from Rabbi Akiva. Beloved is man who is created in the image of God. Now, based on what Rav Lushetz has done till now, arguably this would be limited to the Jewish people. Right? It's not Briot, nor is the term Ha'adam. Yet Rav Lushetz is convinced that this includes the non-Jews as well. And he brings several proofs. First of all, the Mishnah continues to say, Chavivin Yisrael Beloved is Israel, called sons of the Almighty. Now clearly, if the next line is Chavivin Yisrael, so the first line, by contrast, Chaviv Adam is universal. We have a universal belovedness of humanity and a particularistic belovedness of the Jewish people. So just the literary structure indicates that Chaviv Adam refers to the non-Jewish world as well. He also cites several other proofs. He points out that when Yeshua hung five non-Jewish kings, right? He felt the need to bring them down before nightfall. Right, now this relates to, of course, the mitzvah in Sefer Dvarim about not leaving a body 
overnight. It seems like Rav Lifshit says that's based on having a Tzalem Elokim. Since the non-Jewish kings had a Tzalem Elokim, Yeshua was not able to leave their bodies hanging overnight. Again, another proof that Chava Adam must really be universal. And then that's what he does in his Yachin. In the Boaz, he has one of his most powerful statements. He said, what does the Gemara mean when it says, Enumut Olam Kuruna Adam? So he says, Could it imagine you think Chazal could say about a non-Jew created image of God that there's no difference between him and the animal? It simply cannot be. It's inconceivable this would be the religious perspective of the non-Jewish world. And then he says, it's simply not true. If they'd be Masad first of all, if their actions would be like the animal world, they would not be relevant to Sechar Onesh, where we, as we learn, And then he says to perhaps even the strongest sense, even if Chazal had not told us that in the world to come, we would know that just from our intellect. Says Rav Lifshitz, we look around and there are non-Jews who do some very wonderful things in this world. It can't be that they are excluded from Sechar Onish. It can't be that we view their actions as Masad Behema. Therefore, we must postulate, correctly so, that Chazal think that they have a Tzal Mokim and that their actions are quite worthwhile. And then he goes through a list, and he quotes some fascinating things about thing, non-Jews that have done good things. And he says, there are many of them, they accept the Creator, they believe in the Torah, they do nice things to the Jewish people, but not just to the Jewish people, they're those that did great things for the world. And then he goes through four of them, and it's a fascinating list. Jenner, And he mentions Jenner for discovering the, the, the vaccine, Right, which saves uh, thousands and thousands of lives. Then he mentions Francis Drake, the Draka, Shaviar Kartoffel, Liropa, right, bringing the potato over to Europe, which is a historical debate who really did it. But be that as may, he has, oh, there's another Nanju who did a grand act in the world that's certainly deserving of reward. The Gutenberg showed him Siat Hadfus. They mentioned Gutenberg for creating the, pr- the press, right? And then further, he says, not only do we have these Nanjus who did great things, there are many who did not receive their world in this world. And he mentions Ruchlin, a Christian scholar who defended the Talmud in front of the Emperor Maximilian uh, after a Pfefferkorn had tried to uh, speak against the Talmud and get it to burnt. And Ruchlin risked his uh, personal security to save the Talmud. And then he points out, And the priest uh, took their vengeance upon this fellow Ruchlin. And they pressured him till he died with a broken heart. Could it be that God would not pay these actions back? And here, Elushitz clearly indicates his attitude here, that the, you look around, an honest look at the world around you reveals that their non-Jews have done wonderful things, and some of them do not receive their world and the reward in this world. And it seems evident that God would want to reward them in the world to come. And here, this really brings to a close our discussion of Elushitz. We see his broad intellectual reach, his great interest in what various topic aspects of Jewish literature and non-Jewish literature as well, which goes together with his positive assessment of the non-Jewish world. Right, next week we'll move on to the next rabbinical figure.